0: Ligonier Ministries, the home of Renewing Your Mind, presents Dust to Glory, an overview of the Bible with R.C. Sproul. I remember when I was a college student that during the summer I worked as a counselor in a Jewish boys camp, and I was zealous to communicate the scriptures to my campers, but I was also restricted by the ownership of the camp on how much I could say. And so I made a practice of reading bedtime stories to my little campers every night. And their favorite book for the stories was the book of Judges. They would get on the edge of their cots as we would go through the adventures that are recorded in that book. It really is an exciting, uh, rapidly paced, quick-moving sequence of Jewish history. The book of Judges, as brief as it is, covers roughly a period of 350 years, from the death of Joshua through the end of the period of the Judges, which culminates at the life of Samuel, of course, who, whose life is recorded for us in First Samuel and not in the book of Judges. But when I think of that condensation of Jewish history in that one little book of about 350 years, I think back to the middle of the 17th century in America. Think of all of the history that has transpired in our country from a period of 125 years before the Revolutionary War up to the modern day. If we look at it that way, we'll get some sense of what a wide expanse of time this is that is found in the Book of Judges. The book is called the Book of Judges because it describes a transitional period in Jewish history, from the time of the wilderness wanderings up until the time of the establishment of the monarchy. And this period is called the Amphictyony. Now, the word Amphictony is one that we never hear, I guess, in the English language, and actually has its origin in ancient Greece. And it described in Greece... The situation where instead of having one king ruling over the entire nation, you had a loosely federated group of peoples or cities that were sort of connected by a religious center. And in the early Greek period, that religious center was the Oracle of Delphi that we've heard about in history. And so that period of Greek civilization was called the Amphictyony, And That term scholars have used to go back and describe this interim transitional time in Jewish history, and the amphictyony is simply a word that describes a form of government where there is no one single center of power, but rather the government exists on the basis of a loose federation of tribe and tribal leaders. So for this period of roughly three and a half centuries, there was no king in Israel, and there was no single leader, such as had been the case under the the leadership of Moses and later on under the leadership and guidance of Joshua. But rather, the leadership of the nation was committed to unique individuals who were, in a true sense of the word, charismatic leaders. Now, we use that term charismatic somewhat loosely in our culture today, and it comes from the Greek word for gift of grace, and it refers in contemporary jargon to those who believe in being anointed by the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. Well, in the Old Testament period, we see the charismata, or the charismatic gifts being poured out to specific individuals for specific tasks, we remember that the first charismatics, as it were, in the Old Testament were those who were responsible for the uh, designing and building of the furniture for the tabernacle. That the Bezalel and the Holyab were anointed by God, the Holy Spirit, and empowered by God for this particular task. We know that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Moses and enabled him to perform the feats that he performed. We remember in Numbers 11, where uh, after Moses had been rebuked by his father-in-law for taking all of the responsibility for all of the details of of organizing, administrating, governing, and being the spiritual leader of the nation— His father-in-law Jethro said to him, The things that you're doing are not good. And God commanded Moses to gather 70 elders, men that he knew were elders over the people. And God said that he would take of the spirit that was upon Moses and put it upon those 70 elders. And when God did that, as it is recorded in Numbers 11 they began to prophesy, indicating they had come under this direct and immediate influence of the Holy Spirit. Also, in the Old Testament, prophets were anointed by the Holy Spirit in a charismatic way and empowered to be spokesmen for God. The anointing of kings later on, when they they were anointed by or with oil, Uh, that anointing ceremony symbolized the coming on the king of the Holy Ghost to endow the king for his particular mission to which God had assigned him. So what we have now during this period of tribal federation in the book of Judges is the record of unique individuals who in times of crisis are raised up by God and empowered by the Holy Ghost to perform the mighty feats and tasks that they uh, fulfilled. We think, for example, perhaps of the most famous of the judges in terms of being charismatically gifted by God for great exploits was Samson. We think of Samson and his hair and the story with Delilah and all of that and his Herculean strength by which he pulled down the, the the Philistine temple, and he killed all these people with the jawbone of an ass and these exploits that were unparalleled in Jewish history. But he did it under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a pattern that unfolds for us in the book of Judges that I think is very important for us to grasp, and because it's so illustrative and instructive, not only of this period of Jewish history, but of the whole history of the Old Testament and we might even say the whole history of redemption. And that pattern is seen in a refrain that that occurs over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And it starts like this, And Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And after we would read that ominous preface, then we would see that God would then raise up the enemies of Israel and use them as a tool of chastisement against his own people. God would raise up the Midianites or the Philistines or the Amalekites or whoever. And these, these nations, these pagan people, would then come and oppress the Jews And when the people were oppressed, they would cry out for relief and for deliverance from their God, and they would repent of their sins, and it was only after they would repent that God would then raise up one of the judges, such as uh, Othniel or Ehud, the left-handed judge who slew King Eglon, and he took his sword and put it in his fat belly until the fat covered up the hilt of the sword. We think of the exploits of Deborah and of Barak and of, of Gideon that we'll look at in a moment and Samson and Jephthah and, and others later on ending with Eli and finally Samuel. Well, these individuals would then, you, under the power of the Holy Spirit, would defeat the enemies of the Jewish people and bring deliverance. In fact, sometimes the judges were called by the name Mosheim, which means deliverers. I think of Moshe Dayan, who was the heroic general of the Six-Day War in 1967. And uh, he had the name that was often used for these people in the Old Testament, whom God used as deliverers or saviors of the nation. William Hendrickson uses a little alliteration to describe this cycle that is repetitive in the book of Judges, and he he uses this little alliteration where he has uh, four R's. The first R means relapse, and then the second R stands for retribution. Then the third R stands for repentance. And the fourth R stands for rescue. This is the cyclical pattern that we read over and over and over again in the book of Judges. First of all, the people commit apostasy. And in their apostasy as the word apostasy means they fall away from their fidelity to God. And they begin to worship the foreign gods of the nations and turn themselves over to idolatry. That's what is meant when it says, and Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then what follows each relapse that is recorded in the book of Judges is the retributive justice of God, by which the retribution comes in the outpouring of God's judgment and wrath against his own people. And under the weight of that retributive justice of God, the people are then brought to a state of repentance, and they uh, uh, bewail their situation and await their rescue when God moves to the book of Judges, beginning at verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now, let me just pause at this point. This is a grim, grim recapitulation of the history of these people. You recall at the end of the book of Joshua, when Joshua brought the people together for a renewal of the covenant and said to them, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he called upon the people of Israel to renew their pledge of obedience to the covenant they had with God. And the people promised two things, one positive, one negative. They promised to obey God. That's the positive sense. And they promised not to forsake him. But it wasn't very long until the nation began to forsake the Lord. And this is significant because if you recall the promise that God makes again and again to the patriarchs, when God promises his commitment to his people, he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That immediately points us to the cross, where Christ cries out in the agony of his passion, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some have felt that this was the pangs of Jesus' passion, by which he was simply feeling so alone, so desolate that he had a sense of being forsaken. But, of course, God didn't really forsake him. But, beloved, he did forsake him because that was the penalty for sin, to be forsaken of God. And for us to be redeemed means to be spared from divine forsakenness. And for that to happen... Christ had to take upon himself real forsakenness. Now, he wasn't ultimately forsaken because God raised him from the dead. And as the book of Acts said, that it was impossible for death to hold him because it was impossible for the father to forsake his son long term. But that whole idea of forsakenness is a very important motif in Scripture that the covenant pledge of God to those who are in a relationship with him is, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And the book of Judges attests to that, that even though God chastens his people, he is chastening his children whom he loves. And though they feel forsaken for a season, God does not abandon them. However, the record is that the people forsook Him. That's the big difference between the God of Israel and the God of the covenant and His people. God does not forsake us, but we are prone to forsake Him. And again, what provokes the forsaking of God here in this book is the great desire of the Jewish people to be like their neighbors. God had called them to nonconformity. God had called them to be a holy nation. God had called them to be godly and to flee from idolatry. But that was unpopular in those days. It's unpopular today as well. But we see this cycle occurring when People did what was right in their own eyes, and they forsook the law of God, and they began to imitate the practices of their pagan neighbors. And that cycle does not simply last for 350 years. That is the cycle that the people of God have relived over and over and over again through church history. We read then in verse 14 that the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand against their enemies. And whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. The God of Israel is a God who promises both blessing and curse, both prosperity and calamity. And the judgments of God upon rebellious people are calamitous. We have a tendency to have an expurgated Bible in the life of the church today where we want to delete these things that are such a recurring pattern of the actions of God and that God will bring calamity upon a nation and upon people who forsake Him. Nevertheless, we read in verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. But they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning of all who oppressed them and harassed them. But this passage that I've just read is repeated so many times. It's like the refrain of a song throughout this book. Again, relapse, retribution, repentance, and rescue. Now, the character and the profile of each one of the judges that are That is described here in this book is a fascinating study of godly individuals. But in the brief time that we have left, I want to call your attention to one of them who I think is particularly outstanding, and one of my favorites, and that's Gideon. We meet Gideon in the sixth chapter of the book of Judges. The sixth chapter begins with these words, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. And then in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came to Gideon, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Imagine that for a greeting. Uh, The angel was sent to Mary later on, you know. And uh, and with this annunciation and greeting, here the greeting that Gideon, who's simply a farmer, he's not a soldier at all. And God speaks to him through this angel and says, calls him a mighty man of valor. He, He singles him out as a man of extraordinary bravery. Now, Gideon, I think, was a little bit puzzled by this greeting. I suspect he looked around to see to whom the angel was speaking, and he responded, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? How many times do Christians ask that question? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told about us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? He said, Oh, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least among them. And yet God had just told him to go in his strength and that God would use him and his valor to deliver. How can I do it? I'm from the weakest family. And it says, Oh, God is saying to Gideon, Precisely. Gideon is so terrified by this commission that he can't, he can't believe that God is speaking to him. That's why we read the story of the fleece and God's miraculous confirmation of his call to him. And so Gideon is obedient and he assembles an army to go up against the Midianites. And he has 32,000 soldiers in his employ. And God comes to him and says, you have too many. And he said, see who is fearful among them and send them home. And Gideon said, anybody that's frightened of this conflict, you can go home. And 22,000 went home. 22,000 went AWOL, went over the hill, leaving him with an army now of 10,000, an elite corps of soldiers that are going to go against the whole Midianite nation. And so Gideon said, all right, I'm ready. God looks at his army and he said, it's too many, Gideon. Because if I put victory in your hands with this size of an army, you're going to think that you did it in your own strength. And then that remarkable story of how Gideon is to pare down his army to 300 men. And then with 300 men Gideon puts to rout the entire Midianite army in the nighttime battle. And that story of God's redemption again illustrates the point that we read over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Salvation is of the Lord. For more information about Ligonier Ministries, call 1-800-435-4343 or contact us on the web at Ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R dot O-R-G. Or write P.O. Box 54-7500, Orlando, Florida, 32854.